shoulda, woulda, coulda. Three words that give me the chills. I can't stand the thought of even using them. But having regrets is just a part of life. Even Frank had a few. And my biggest regret I've ever had in the music business was when Jeff Healy asked me to play with him twice, and I didn't immediately clear my schedule to make it happen. To be fair, it was at a time back in 2002 when Our World was on autopilot in a constant merry-go-round of touring. We're still a very hard touring band, but back in 2002, our grueling schedule was starting to earn us the tag of hardest working band in the land. We reveled in the designation and we did our best to live up to it. But some of the fallout was being unable to do stuff on the home front, like take Jeff up on his offer. And his offer was simple. Come down to his bar, appropriately named Healy's, at the corner of Queen and Bathurst in downtown Toronto and play a set with him. What an honor! Something I didn't take lightly, but I couldn't figure out when there would be enough space for me to do it, to learn the songs, to practice the songs, etc., etc. Whenever there would be free time, I would bask in the stillness and the silence. That's how chaotic things had gotten back in 2002. Every six to nine months, Jeff's offer would pop into my head. I would casually go through a possible set list, and then the thought would pass. Until 2008, when Jeff passed away and the world lost one of its greatest guitarists, greatest musicians. Regret hit me like a punch in the gut. But it also taught me to never take weighty offers for granted. And since then, when an offer to collaborate would extend itself, I've always taken it. Some collaborations have seen the light of day, others haven't. But I can rest easy knowing that the words shoulda, woulda, and coulda are kept at bay for at least one more day. The two times I met Jeff were delightful. Here was a guy who I had listened to and watched since I was a kid, and he immediately talked to me like a peer. That's laughable even to me, knowing where Jeff perched on the lexicon of rock guitar gods. But he spoke to me like a bud. Maybe because I met him through his best friend, Roger Costa. So it made for a comfortable meeting. But I never forgot this first impression. Now that Jeff has passed, Roger has become the co-administrator of the Healy Estate and is carrying the torch, maintaining the legacy that Jeff built. Roger is someone I've known for about two decades now, from owning and running Monster Records on Young Street in Toronto, a store that I bought a few records from. During this year of 2016, Healy would have turned 50 years old, and with that, Roger has been able to release Heal My Soul to mark the Golden Jubilee, a collection of songs from the Healy vaults that showcase the more rockin' side of the man and the band. I had to bring in Roger to talk about Jeff, the new album, and the celebration that resulted from the album's release at Massey Hall this past May. You know, whether people know it or not, I've carried a little bit of Jeff around me for the last 15 years or so. When Jeff's old guitar tech, Keith Riddick, gave me a Strat guitar that had an old neck of Jeff's. Mind you, it wasn't one of Jeff's guitars, but it did have one of his old necks. I think I even told Jeff that. And for that alone, I treasure this guitar. 
If anyone has ever seen the black strat I used to play with the mirrored pick guard and skull knobs, well, then you've seen that neck. Anyway, this podcast is supported by Skull Candy Headphones and Blue Mic Microphones. This podcast supports Chino Locos Restaurants, Nippon Sopa, Strofe Waffles, and Three's Company Reruns. Please leave a rating or a review on the iTunes store if you get a chance. I recently posted about this on Instagram, and I got a few people who, who did post a review and rating, so thank you very much for those of you who did. If you haven't yet, please do so. It, it really helps the podcast's profile on the iTunes store, and it just really makes the, honest. I'll be honest with you, it makes the podcast look weighty in comparison to all the other podcasts that are up there. The more reviews this podcast gets, the more of a profile the podcast gets online and within the iTunes store. So please, if you can, please do it. Okay, here we go. Roger Costa is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. They play the kid as Danko screw up, tell them for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy in from fucked up. Stop playing hang down, down. What do you see in my future? What are you reading in bones? She paused for a while, flashing alligator smile as she told me Danko. I feel it's absolutely compulsory for you to listen to the Danko Jones podcast. Many times, Liz and I camped out in front of our Fisher 500 hi-fi receiver, hanging on Danko's every word. It's what we used for inspiration when we both starred in Under Milkwood. We even got Peter hooked by the end of the production. Peter O'Toole, that is. <laughs> I implore you to go now and listen to Danko expound on subject matter most of us don't even think twice about. Listen to him. Turn anything into podcast gold. It's simply fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready because the Danko Jones podcast starts. You're here. You made it. I'm glad you're on this uh, podcast. Uh, uh, you are um, someone I've known for a super long time. Way too long. Way too long. Yeah. I guess we should just like cut to the chase. I've known you for 20 years. Yes. You know, it's 20 years. 20, yeah. 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually met you through our mutual friend. Fred. Fred. Yes. Um, uh, and the way I remembered you guys was like, it, there's Fred and there's Roger. It's like <laughs> Mr. Roger's neighborhood. It's Fred and Roger, and you guys had nice. the store. Someone yeah. must have put that together a long no. time. Are you serious? Seriously, I've never. And You've never when you heard said that. that. I'm like, wow, why didn't I think of that? No, I've never. That's how I remembered you guys. It's like yeah. Fred and Roger, Fred Roger, Fred Rogers owns, they own Monster Records. So I was like, Mr. Roger's neighborhood. Monster Records is in... No. Okay, let's backtrack. You used to co-own with my bud, Fred, Yeah. Monster Records. Then you bought Fred out. I used to work down the street. I used to come over all the time. Yeah. And I got to know you very well. And now you're here. Very true. And you're no longer working down the street. No. And neither am I. 
<laughs> no, no. You closed up shop, what, three years ago? Five. Are you serious? It's yep. been five years. 2011. I, I was there for, I had that shop for 14 years. And it was a great store. It had uh, secondhand records before the vinyl resurgence. Yes. Uh, secondhand books, just really kitschy pop culture stuff. Um, and I'm sure you've got, you had some real gems that came through that store over the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was, the, it was always, I mean, that was, it was fun, right? I mean, it was not only dealing with all the crazy, Cooks. wonderful people that came through the door and some not so wonderful, but it yeah. was all the crazy stuff that I would never, for in any other circumstance, get to see. So, yeah. It was, yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. It was like the only store in Toronto where you'd walk in. And it was a great locale. It was like Young and Bloor, the center of the city. You'd walk in there, and there'd be like a Kiss pinball machine, in you know, in in '99 or you know yeah. whatever, and and uh, crazy weird uh, black exploitation posters and Battlestar Galactica, Lauren Green <laughs> era stuff. Yeah. Um, so so. Um, uh, I would be down the street in the porn sh- store where I worked. I'd close up shop. And I, because I hated it, <laughs> and then I'd come over to you guys and just complain yeah. <laughs> about <laughs> the porn store, um, yeah. and then just go through your your new arrivals. Yeah, the the porn store and the record store, and I think any other place that you worked during that period. Yeah, it was a you would pretty much just drop by on your way home and complain, get yeah. it all out of your system, so yeah. your family would you know <laughs> yeah. not hate you. <laughs> And then I'd put, I remember I was broke, so I'd always put records on hold. And he had a little stash (laughs) that never got bought. (laughs) So now when I do that to other people, I'm like, I got to buy them. I can't can't be like that. I was like that way with Roger. I can't do that anymore. Um, So that's how I remember that. And there's one time I was going to buy this Power Man Iron Fist comic book. I don't know if you remember this. And uh, you said, hey, that's really good. I read that. That's really good. I'm like, what? You read it? And I was like, <laughs> you're, you're, you're supposed to look down on us. You're not supposed to be like us. You're not supposed to be one of us. One of us. You're supposed one. to look down on all the people walking in here and just like... I couldn't believe you were. I was like almost offended. That <laughs> you actually like, you know, engaged in all this crap that we did. Yeah, sad but true. But in the store, there was a section of uh, Jeff Healy's. Um, what, what are what were they? Seventy eights, yeah. jazz seventy eights, because he was actually, whether people realized it or not, more of a jazz head than a rock and roll person. Huge, yeah. And so he gave you his collection. And that's when I realized, found out, that you and Jeff were best friends. Not just friends. Je- best. Yeah. So the stuff, I mean, the stuff I was selling in the store was basically his cast-offs. He would go and he would, you know, go to some guy's barn and, uh, you know, wherever he happened to be touring and, you know, buy a thousand records off the guy. And then he'd go through them all after they got all shipped home. And then he'd have a bunch of doubles or he'd upgrade copies to better co- quality copies. And then he'd just bring them by the store and we'd just sell them off for him. It was an it was a weird thing to have in the store, you know, right beside like a $6 million man doll, uh, you know, and like uh, some like Wayne Gretzky book. And then 
Jeff Healy's Jazz 78s, everybody. It's just a little more highbrow than the store called for. So I always thought that was kind of cool, though. It was a cool connection, though, with, with Jeff being a little bit a part of the store. And then um, through you, as the years rolled by, and these are like, we're, we're talking about like 10 years onwards, I met Jeff through you. Jeff opened up his Healy's uh, bar near where I used to live. Mm-hmm. So it was a real kind of like, I think it was like six blocks, seven blocks away from me. Yeah. And um, I met Jeff there through you. He was really nice. And I spent an evening with him, like half an hour with him once at his bar. I don't think you were there. It was no. back in the backstage room to the little stage they had. Yeah. And it was basically Jeff trying to convince me to play with him. <laughs> yes. I was like, half of me was like, I can't fucking believe this is happening. <laughs> and the other half of me was like, I have no time for this. I got to go on tour. <laughs> yeah, what am I doing? Um, so that is, that remains one of the things I, uh, that I, I've always regretted. Yeah. Not taking Jeff up on him and putting everything aside when he offered it. Well, but that ended up making for a great story for you, too, when you actually did play the club originally thinking that Jeff was going to be playing with you. And then you found out that he was actually in Brazil. <laughs> and he called you, I think, the day before or yeah. something to apologize. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then you went on stage and went off for like 16 minutes. <laughs> about <laughs> Ripping on him <laughs> in his own bar. Just ripping on the owner. <laughs> and he absolutely loved it. He thought it was awesome. Uh, I, but the, the, uh, I, was, I, I will tell you that like even though I made it kind of like just kind of a funny jab, I was super fucking disappointed i was like this sucks this is the reason why i wanted to do this and then i showed up to the gig i did not know this but two-thirds of gatto were his backing band at the time so i I actually ended up like you know befriending greg godovitz Mm, and and doug inglis and and it was a fucking great night like because i was like i was like this is cool and then um uh uh jerome godbo was, was there as well so it was actually pretty cool. It, it turned out to be a fun night. But uh, <laughs> Jeff heard about, I guess through you, what I said on stage. And he goes, I promise, come back. I promise I won't go to Brazil again. <laughs> and then it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I, I think that was around 2002. Oh, that was right when you were taken off too, right? It was, so, it was crazy. That sure. year was crazy. The, those two, three years were crazy. Um, so, yeah. Um, so that's that was my connection with with Jeff, and then through the years, you know, obviously you guys are best friends and all this stuff. But now, one of the reasons why I thought, well, this is a good chance and a good moment to have you on, not just to like have you on and just talk shit about like, hey, you seen Breaking Bad, <laughs> you know, like none of that <laughs> crap talk, but like some concrete stuff that you've been able to do. Uh, with uh you know jeff's legacy and continuing the legacy on um and they've happened in the last year so this past may i was unable to attend i wanted to be on stage but you um had this huge night to celebrate something commemorate something of jeff's like 50th yeah jeff would have been 50 this year so uh we wanted to uh make it a 
as big a deal as we could. Um, <clears throat> we've been, um, for the last, well, since Jeff passed away, we've been, uh, Jeff's wife and I, Jeff Christ, uh, Christy, mm -hmm. Jeff's wife, um, we've been working towards uh, getting Jeff's name, uh, keeping Jeff's name in the public eye and making sure that he's remembered um, at the level that he should be. Because, I mean, he was a, a, a brilliant musician. I mean, not, besides the fact that, you know, he's a friend, great guy, whatever. But he was, he was a, a genius-level musician. I mean, watching him play was effortless. Like, he, you know, and there's obviously, you know, there's, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of hours of, you know, that went into getting to that level. But, um, you know, he could pick up any instrument and play, right? You know, and we wanted to just we wanted to make sure that he wasn't just the roadhouse guy you know or um you know or the angel eyes guy right so um it was something that was very important to us about three years ago um we started working on on uh on spotlighting jeff's legacy and bringing it uh, back into the public eye. So we, you know, redid the website. Uh, we started the first official Facebook page, um, you know, and now three years later, we just crossed last week uh, 158,000 people on Facebook. Wow. Um, and that's, uh, none of them are paid. They're all natural. And we get, uh, it's slowed down a bit in the last few weeks. It depends on the Facebook's algorithms or whatever, but uh, we're still getting you know between um three and and 800 likes net likes every week wow um so it's it's cool it's still going forward and um you know we've been working to try and get you know make sure that anything that comes out with jeff's name on it is worthy of having jeff's name on it because there's a lot of stuff that we didn't have control over um after jeff's passing that was frankly you know not as good as it could have been should have been some of it should have never been released in the first place mm -hmm. so we want people to know now that if it's something that the estate is connected to that it's worth getting well with this album heal my soul um obviously these are tracks from the vaults um what went into choosing these tracks? How did you find these tracks? And what makes the, the release um, stand out? Right. Well, this is an album that I've wanted to do for years. Um, I was aware of a lot of the tracks on Heal My Soul for a long time. About 20 years ago. Okay, these were all recorded between 1996 and 98. Crazy, weird period in Jeff's life. Um, they had just left their longtime record label, Arista Records. And um, it, Jeff's rock career uh, and his life were kind of in free fall. He was in the middle of a divorce. The band was going through all kinds of bad friction. There was years of, of issues. Um, mis they were self-managed band, and, and you know there was a lot of uh, mistakes made along the way and, and friction that it builds up uh, as these things do. And um, he was kind of sick of everything. Uh, and so he was, he didn't know what he wanted. Uh, at one point, you know, they left Arista. And then a couple months later, he was clamoring to get a new record deal. They got a new record deal. They were on Atlantic for about five minutes. Then they left Atlantic again. 
and what was a regular routine for years of them you know recording an album going on the road coming back recording an album going on the road um turned into this four-year period of just letting stuff out and so um jeff recorded uh about 36 songs during this period co-wrote a whole bunch of them um and uh, ultimately in 2000 there was an album release called get me some um which had 12 of those tracks on it and it should have been um a brand new chapter in Jeff's rock career. It should have been a big renaissance for him. Um, some of the songs were really powerful, um, stronger than anything he'd released before. But by that point, they had gone through so many hands. There were a lot of great producers involved, um, but unfortunately, um, you know, there was no real flow to the record because there were so many fingers in the pie, sort mm-hmm. of thing. And and um, it suffered from it um there's a couple of missteps on the album anyways so but at the time jeff um played me some of these songs um and uh two in particular days of the night which is the lead off track yeah right and uh and and baby blue and he loved these songs like he was he was so proud of the work that he did on these things and i never forgot these tracks and so it was always a case of, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could do this, right? But we need to have the right partners and we need to have access and all that stuff. Well, you know, we was went, this was this also did you come up with this idea of the partners and stuff when Jeff was alive? Were you did you talk to him about this? No. Oh, okay. This is all this after is all his, after his yeah. passing. Okay. So I mean I never forgot these tunes, but right. I mean and, and and had Jeff not, you know, passed in 2008 I probably would have eventually started bugging him about them again um, but uh, no this is something that I thought of afterwards when I was thinking of what was out there and you know we'd, we'd sort of you know it's like the, the the fantasy football right you start putting together lists of tracks in your head and you you know you put that one in the closet and that should never be released and that shouldn't have you know but that should come out and that needs new drums and that needs this and so you know just constantly going through these things and um so we partnered up with uh, through um, friends of ours at Universal. We ended up partnering with a company called Convex, who are uh, have been great to to work with. And um, uh, Mascot is uh, distributing the lab- the, uh, the album for the rest of the world outside of Canada. And um, so we basically uh, were given the keys to the vault and uh, we were allowed to go in and uh, because we don't own um, any of the masters on this recording. They're owned by Eagle Rock and uh, they were great um, and uh, they let us go through and I already had a list of, of the songs that I was looking for and some that I only had titles on that there was no reference tapes so I had no idea what they sounded like. And I dug through and found all these masters, and then we got them all um, cleaned up and transferred to digital. And um, you know, there's also specific takes that we were looking for, all of that stuff. Like, is that was, all written down? Like, did you have some sort of uh, map to go through this with? Or no, there was uh, the minimal actual documentation. Uh, what I knew, I knew from. Uh, I'm also the archivist for for the estate, and so what I knew was from going through um, the recordings myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, um, in later years, mostly because of his frustration for the business side of music, 
he kind of distanced distanced himself away from the the stuff that he did with the rock band during that period but he kept copies of these things with him through like three different moves and he they meant something to him right so i had those to go by as well and there were specific things like there was a uh, for days of the night that's the only the only song that had been previously released on anything else but not this version at all and the version that was released in my opinion was awful it was a different solo different vocal take it was a completely different mix it was a, it was a different song in my opinion so i had to find that one and sometimes i had to go back to the vault two three times where it's like okay i've got you know these three tapes that have you know eight takes on them it's got to be one of these no okay <laughs> gotta go back and so he recorded days of the night numerous times like more than a dozen well they would they, yeah there was a bunch of different takes and really? uh, yeah so on some of those things that it was it was pretty crazy but Guess uh, i'm revealing a little bit more about us <laughs> <laughs> well here's the thing too right like at the time the 90s were a good time right like to be at the top of your game and you know they had a mansion like it was the band mansion it was uh, just north of Casa Loma, right they had built a st- their own studio in the, they converted the garage to a studio and you know with a full you know multi-track board and everything like it was it was monstrous so he would go in there right. and just you know but push record and just two inch tape like yeah, yeah yeah endless yeah, yeah. amounts of two inch tape yeah. That's pretty cool. So he would go in and do all this stuff and just... Very luxurious to do that. Definitely. So so for Baby Blue, for example, right? Like when he played me that, he was like, you know, do, I laid down like, you know, six harmony vocals on this. Check it out. It's awesome. Right? And he was just so happy because he would just sit there and he would just go, okay, I'm right. going to do another vocal. Hey, you know what? I'm going to do another vocal. <laughs> I'm going to get up off this chair and just after my coffee. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it's funny because you'd get to these, these, these takes of the songs and... You know, there might be a scratch vocal and, you know, a good vocal and then like some other bits in there. Usually there was one solo. Like he would go in there and just let fly and that was it. Right. Right. And then everything else would build around that and get it's changed. It's like from, from the, the school of jazz, really. Yeah. Right? Sure. And I mean, the solos were always different. You know, like he rarely mapped out a solo and knew, he sometimes knew the beats that he wanted to hit, but quite often, um, and this will sound weird to some of the, the the rock fans that are listening, but like he took, you know, he took a page from his hero's book, who was Louis Armstrong. And Louis Armstrong was the guy who basically started the whole, you know, improvising solos in songs. Like people would get, you know, like like two bars, little, you know, little riff in in a in a song, and that would be it. But he was the first guy to say, "Take a solo, let's do this, right, and run with it." And so Jeff, you know, would basically lay down a solo off the top of his head and honestly like i was gonna say nine times out of ten 99 times out of 100 it was something just awesome mm-hmm. you know just blow your head apart awesome and that solo like in days of the night um you know that solo was burned into my brain from when i first heard it 20 years ago and um you know when i heard the version that was released that was so obviously like more of a demo version you know, and that solo was missing. Like all the beats in that solo that you know, I've 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 got you know choreographed hand movements that go with them. Right? But how did how did you burn it in your brain? Did you hear it more than once? I, I heard it probably a couple of times, but it was just it stuck with me, right? right. But then, um, like I said, after Jeff passed, and we're you know consolidating all the recordings that we had on hand and everything, and you know found that he had 
copies of these with him that's the version that you know that, that he had with him and um and and it was just it was just mind-blowing mm-hmm. right. well i mean i've heard it and uh, what you what he did to you you did to me i mean you played me uh, a lot of snippets off off the record yeah. and uh the one thing i that i w- that was notable was a lot of people know jeff as uh, you know an incredible axe men but um it's always from like the softer blues side these songs are like really hard rocking yeah something that i think he wanted to uh, am i right to assume he wanted to kind of um make sure people knew that side of him or i think you know like there was always a um that disconnect between you know the people who were the Angel Eyes fans. Yeah, that's And what then I mean. going to a Jeff Healy show where, you know, it just melts your face at times, right? And, and you know, certainly, you know, like See the Light, whenever he would close his shows with that, that was like his anthem. Mm-hmm. I mean, depending on his mood, it could turn into this insane 20-minute Jimi Hendrix thing <laughs> right. where he's on stage by himself making... Right you know, crazy sounds with right. his guitar. Right. And I'm sure that must have, you know, messed up the, the you know, the Angel Eyes <laughs> fans, right? But, um, but it was all part of who he was. And I think during that time period, with all this shit that was going on in his life and that, I, I think that it was just, it was a way for him to, to just vent and get all of this aggression and, and frustration out. And, you know, it it's just created something awesome. I don't... It, Honestly, in my opinion, and I, I said this, I've said this before, and people, you know, are going to be all over this in the, you know, if there's a comment section in the podcast or whatever. But in my opinion, even if I wasn't involved in this, this is the single best Jeff Healy rock release, period. Because it is a rock release. Yeah. And when I say that it's hard rock, and I don't necessarily mean the solos, because he can... You can lay a blistering solo down on Angel Eyes, you know? Yeah. You can. Mm-hmm. But it's the riffs. Yeah. You know, the structure of the songs that I think take a take a turn to the harder than I think what Jeff's fans what he he became known for, which was this kind of like crooning bluesman, you know, like this kind of I hate to use this term, but the blue-eyed soul, like the blue-eyed blues or whatever, you know, sure. like um I use that term, you know, I don't like the term, but no. I'll use it in this case to just kind of describe what I mean. Sure, and I get it. And, and that was something that he was uh, known as the blues guy, and it's something that he fought against for, yeah. for years. I mean, he didn't... Yeah. Sure, blues were a part of his repertoire and a part of what he did and a part of what made him famous, but he really hated the label like he he wasn't you know the blues guitar player he was a guitar player he was a musician right um and he had all of this stuff in him right well when i've seen footage i think maybe something you've uploaded online where it's like him playing a trumpet yeah yeah and he seems not out of his he seems completely in his element like he's loving it Mm -hmm. more so than guitar you could tell but it's like this thing that i think as a rocker um, and being in the rock world, you run into you run into jazz heads who have lowered themselves to play rock and roll music to pay the bills. But the real love and the real passion is for jazz. And as as a as a guy who loves rock and roll first, when I've seen these people 
play jazz after I've known them for a long time to play rock and roll. <clears throat> there's this betrayal and there's this this weird thing like you see them just love and playing this thing and you're just scratching your head going, how is this? How is this guy? <laughs> I've seen this so many times before yeah. where he's just like blowing this trumpet. And I'm like, look at him. He's fucking loving it. Like more so than rock and roll. How can you love this more than rock and roll? Like I, it's, it's this weird betrayal feeling I feel. But watching Jeff like playing trumpet on those on that footage I've seen you upload, I'm, I'm, it's, 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 it's really... Um, yeah, I feel betrayed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? For him, like it was, it was the music, right? I mean, he just loved playing, and the, the jazz stuff. He was a big fan of the jazz stuff, and and in a lot of ways, when he played jazz, it was liberating because, um, you know, he didn't have anyone telling him what he had to do. Right. right? It's very structured in rock. Well, and when he was doing the, 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 the jazz records, certainly, I mean, like his, his rock career, which, you know, to be fair, um, it was a product of its time. It was geared towards the hit. The record company would send you X number of songs, pick the songs you want to do. Yes, you're going to write some songs, but we're going to give you co-writers. All of this stuff. Oh, really? Was well, in, in a lot of cases. I mean, like they, there's a lot of songs in the beginning that came fully formed that he brought with him to the first record deal, "See the Light," mm-hmm. um, and and a bunch of others. But they also you know got him to co-write with people and the entire aim of of the machine was to to make more hits right which is something that really you know got jeff mm-hmm. tired yeah right? I, I can i can understand jazz records he he'd go in he was running the show yeah he, you know there was no one telling him what to do what to do he would like he would pick the tunes that he loved to do and he would run with it and and jeff um was happiest when the spotlight wasn't on him he would go into and there's so many stories of this um you know uh whether it's a jam at his club or you know whether he's playing with the jazz guys you know he was happy to sit back and be you know the guy in the band and it's like yeah hey you know you take the spotlight right Mm -hmm. one of the one of the um uh, prime rock examples of this is philip sace amazing guitar player super nice guy uh he's got his own great career um he's a guy that um jeff uh was introduced to him i think philip was like 18 or something Mm -hmm. and um uh they were i think pat rush who was his regular guitar player at the time who had played with johnny winter and a million other people pat's a great guy as well yeah. 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 But I think he was unavailable or something. So there was a tour coming up and Jeff um went hung out with Philip jammed I think at Grossman's or something like everyone does and then was like come join the band and Philip's head exploded and he was like what? Yeah. You know? <laughs> He's like come join the band. You know, you got all kinds of great things inside you. Come, come and go on tour with me. I'll show you how to play the big rooms. I'll show you how to play the big stages. And then you go off and do your thing, right? And so this kid, which he was a kid. He was an astounding guitar player back then, but he was a kid. Went on tour with Jeff, who had already had a 12-year career by this point in the public eye, right? And he would let him sing a song. 
you know, and and he would let him take solos, you know, in some songs where Jeff, you know, wouldn't take a solo. He'd like, you know, you do it, right? I just want to be the guy sitting here. And, and then, you know, at the same time, you know, here's this kid who was, you know, full of all the stupid energy that we have when we're that young and excited, which, you know, I don't know how I get up in the morning these days, but, you know, but here's this guy and he's like, you know, just slamming it. And Jeff is loving it. And it, he's, he starts bouncing off of it and it lifts him up. Right. And he's like, you know, he's having a tired bad day whatever they've been on the road for months he you know and philip plays this crazy solo and he's like all right you know that's right bring it now i'm coming back at you right so there'd be this interplay and he just loved all that stuff i mean he would go as in the later years with his with his blues band um which was called the jeff healy blues band for contractual you know legal reasons it couldn't be there's air quotes there for the people that are seeing me um <laughs> Uh, because uh, there was issues with the name, the Jeff Healy band, which is a whole other podcast. But anyway, so, um, they would go and they, um, he had a, a wicked house band, Dave Murphy, uh, Alec Fraser, um, uh, Al Webster who plays drums with, uh, um, so many people. Um, I think he's with Colin James right now. Um, Dan Nordemir, a wicked guitar player. Um, and th- he would go and their songs were, you know, he would let everyone in the band take the spotlight. You know, Alec would sing White Room. Um, you know, they used to do, uh, uh, there's a video of it from, from the Nottenden Festival um, in uh, Norway where um, uh, Dave does uh, Highway to Hell and Jeff just plays rhythm. You know, he gets up and he's, he's, he's goofing and he flips the guitar around the, the, the and more air quotes, the right way. Um, and uh, and he's just, just having a fun, goofy time with it while everyone else is taking solos and, and, and belting out ACDC at this blues festival, right? And he loved it, right? You know? Well, um, I'm, I spent a day with Philip once. Uh, yeah. That's the day I met him. I didn't even know who he was, but JC and I were in Paris to do um, press and it was one of the longest days of press we've ever done. And we showed up we were to the lobby of the hotel where all the journalists were. And then this guy from Toronto goes, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing press too. I'm like, who, sorry, who, who, what's going on? And so we actually did our press days in tandem in the same lobby with the same journalists because we both had the same PR people and they figured we'll do it all two in one. And there were some, you know, journalists or mags that weren't right for either one of us, but we ended up spending the whole day together the entire day because in the evening we did a radio show together, like late (laughs) night on Paris radio. Um, And then I've never seen him again. And then he pops up on your feed about Jeff Healy. I didn't, he might have mentioned the Healy connection. I don't remember, but we just had the same kind of mutual. He's a he's his brother was in the Deadly Snake, so I knew I know I knew oh, him from there. Okay, right, yeah. yeah. So that's how he I goes, didn't even realize that. Yeah, my brother was in the Snakes, and so that's that's the avenue I remember him through. I don't remember if he mentioned Jeff, but um, yeah. So he pops up, and every time I see him. I remember, I remember that day. And that was, I think, in 2008. Yeah. So he was already kind of in Jeff's band by then? 
Yeah, well, by then, well, Jeff passed away in March of 2008. So uh, well, so this had just happened, I guess. But so Philip was in Jeff's band uh, at like 99 to 2001, kind of oh, in that okay, period. Oh, okay, okay. And then he went on to be Melissa Etheridge's guitar player. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I, I can't for the life of me remember the quote, but there was a... Um, some I don't know if it was Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There was some big Grammy thing or something. I can't remember. I've just seen it on on YouTube. But um, uh, he's playing with Melissa Etheridge, and then John Bon Jovi gets up to do something and um, uh, present an award or something. And you know, he just I, I can't remember the exact quote, but they had to beep him out. But he said something like, you know, who the fuck is Philip? <laughs> you know, like it was just like that was awesome. Like, you oh, know, that guitar great. player was awesome. So, um, yeah, like he, you know, he kicks ass. Yeah, it was funny because we were in Paris, and suddenly we're thrust together with this guy from Toronto, <laughs> going hand like he would be talking to a journalist, and then their interview would be up, and then I'd sit in where he was sitting, and I'd talk to the same journalist. Yeah. I think a couple times they're like, so are you friends? I'm like, I've never seen this guy in my life. I haven't met this guy. I don't know who he is. But you're from Toronto. I know. I don't know. So it was like that. It was just a weird day, and it was very long. Yeah. It was so long, and there's so many journalists that I did the interviews by myself, and JC did. We split interviews. There's just It was just nonstop. And it was in the lobby of this hotel where we were just going around and around with Philip Sace. That's how I remember him. <laughs> And every time I see him on your feet, I'm like, that's the dude I spent a day with in Paris. <laughs> and and on top of everything, like not only is he, you know, he's he he's like the triple threat, right? I mean, like the guy is an astounding guitar player. He has an incredible voice. He's like this golden god, <laughs> this blonde, you know, California looking dude. And he is the nicest guy on the planet. He has like you know, no ego issues. He's just yeah, he's, he's real so nice. nice. I he's, remember him being yeah. really nice, not standoffish like I was. Oh, well, <laughs> well, you're a whole other you know, um, like you're a whole other threat. I don't know about triple. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like you know, he's one of those guys where, and this is a, a real thing. Like you know, at the 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 show that I guess that we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. Like he. Um, he would go like when he got there and he's setting up his gear, he went around and introduced himself to all the crew guys, you know, like, it's just like, Hey, you know, I'm Philip. I mean, nice to meet you. What are you doing here today? Oh, awesome. You know, hope we have a good time. You know, like it was just like, so, like, he's just so nice. Yeah. No, that is a class thing to do. Yeah. JC does that. Well, he always was the he, class. Slice yeah, he's, Danko Joe I, he, he, yeah. He allows for me to just like stay in a little corner and go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah but but that's really nice no he was a really nice guy that's how i remember him and and uh to obviously to to have been taken drafted by someone as esteemed as jeff obviously very talented um and he did something i never got to do which is jam with jeff multiple times multiple times and that's what that's one of the things he used to call it the uh the 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 uh, the Jeff Healy University like going on the on those mm -hmm. first tours he I said he would that. sit there and he would just like you know just sit there with his jaw hanging open watching Jeff play right and yeah like, I uh, can imagine that would be a 
See, that's some, someone who can understand it. Me, I'm more of I'm a more of a singer than I am of a guitar player. So a lot of that stuff would go over my head. I'd be just like, wow, how does he do that? Well, even the even the, uh, <laughs> you it. know, there's there's a, a, the God of It's, you know, tells a story about you know getting on stage with Jeff and. Uh, they were jamming and, and Jeff's like, you know, let's just let's do someone asked for why my guitar gently weeps or something. And he's like, yeah, sure. Right. And Gatto's like, uh, I don't I don't know, you know, how to play it. I mean, I know the song, but I don't know. And and Jeff's like, God, ah, you know, just just watch me. And, and God of it's is like, like, it's like watching someone playing fucking piano. I don't know what's going on over there. <laughs> like, I have no idea what he's doing. And I'm like, all right. This is <laughs> great. <laughs> great, man. He's great. Uh, that was one of the best times uh, of the night. Well, was he, just hanging out with Greg Goddard. He had great things to say about you, too. And actually, I think it's on the recording where he's talking about, you know, yeah. uh, so I, may, I meet Danko Jones today, <laughs> and he's this nice, quiet, shy young man, and he's so nice. And all of a sudden, he gets on stage, and he's like, fucking Henry Rollins. What's going on here? <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. It was, it was really cool. Um, but this this uh, 50th anniversary show that you did in May right. was a huge event with a, a cast of characters, including Philip. Yeah. Um, and who else was it? I don't want to say because I don't really remember. Well, it was, um, we kind of went sideways. I want to get back to the record after and talk about that. But yeah, the the, the show, um, it was awesome. It was at Massey Hall, which is, you know, for anyone not in Toronto, is this sort of, it's a hundred and, I want to say, it's a hundred and thirty-seven year old building. It's this, it's this amazing, amazing venue in the heart of Toronto. And uh, we were lucky to be able to do it there. Um, and we had all these people come out. Philip Sace. It was a. It was a. You know, it was a lot of guitars, uh, <laughs> which you know, it's what we wanted. Uh, you know, it was of the course. show that we were building. And um, you know, there was guys from sort of uh, everyone who played had their own unique sound. It wasn't a bunch of chuckleheads just getting up and doing smoke on the water like it was all everyone it's like this guitar player sounds like that this one doesn't sound like that so it was uh sunny landreth who's this amazing slide player who you know sounds like steve morse while he's playing slide like i mean it's just it's this this intricate amazing heavy stuff um the legendary albert lee who um you know, he's played with, with, you know, Dave Edmonds and Rockpile. I mean, Emmy Lou Harris, all these people. So he's coming at it from this, like, insane, insanely virtuos, virtuistic, virtuositic, virtu... Virtu... Yeah. Yeah, that one with the Virtuistic, virtuistic. There you go. Uh, uh, you know, like, country-picking, uh, but still, like rock, mm-hmm. um, just flooring everybody. There was Walter Trout, who was straight up, you know, in your face, balls out, blues, uh, like heavy. Uh, Philip, you know, who has, um, I don't want to throw labels at him, but I mean, like, there, there's a, there's a Stevie Ray Vaughan vibe going on. He's, 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 he's an amazing rhythm player and lead player. Um, so there's his stuff going on. Um, uh, 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 there was, uh, the only, uh, female that, um, you know, we needed to sort of clear the 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 testosterone out of the air for a bit. It was uh, this amazing singer named Shakura Saida, uh, uh, local. She's played with everyone under the sun as well, uh, but she's known, you know, worldwide. She's just finished two months in Europe uh, doing festivals. Um, she was awesome. We had like a house band that played with everyone all night. Uh, there was the 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 Trues. Um, 
uh, East Coast boys, uh, top of the charts here in, in, in Canada. And, um, you know, they, they, they kicked ass. Uh, um, and, oh, yeah, and, and the special surprise guest of the night was Randy Backman. Oh, wow. And Randy uh, was amazing. Like, seriously, like three days before the show, he's like, okay, I got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> like okay, okay. So there was a house band that learned everybody's songs, and they played like all night long, right? There were six major acts, and then a big finale. And these guys learned everything, right? It was insane. So I'm, you know, it's like okay, guys. I know this is a couple of days before, but this is pretty cool. So what do you think, right? And you know, they rose to the occasion. But so um, last year, uh, Randy had released an album. Uh, it was a lot of guest people on it. There was um, um, Peter Frampton, and um, I, I can't even think. There was it was all these different amazing guitar players were on it with him. And uh, he contacted us and said, "Look, I've got this great guitar solo from Jeff from a song that we jammed on in London. Uh, I want to take the solo out and build a new song around it." And we were like, "Yeah, sure, great, sounds awesome." And it came out really well. It was really cool. So what he did was he called he called us up like like I said two three days before the show, and he's like, "Okay, here's what I want to do." I've got my my guy, my engineer, to remix the song so that there's more of Jeff in it. And what I want to do is I want to get get the band. We're gonna play along. We're gonna play the track to, to Jeff's uh, uh, track, and then uh, one by one, everyone's gonna leave the stage, and we're gonna have Jeff's guitar on stage, and we're just gonna like have his solo ringing out, and there's gonna be an extra minute of solo of his on the end. And we were like, yeah, fuck yeah, that'd be awesome. So, uh, you know, they did that. You know, they the the guys left the stage, the room section left the stage, and then Randy Backman and uh, Pat Rush and Joe ended up staying there on stage, and everyone in the audience was clapping along to this amazing solo. And they just were like, you know, doing the we're not worthy to Jeff's guitar, and people lost their shit. Wow. It was awesome. Wow. Um, it was a great, great moment. People had like, you know, chills. It was so cool. Um, and, you know, apparently, you know, you have to go. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, someone wants to email me. No, uh, that's um, amazing. It was fantastic. So, um, so the night was filled with all kinds of stuff like that. And, Dude, I've been going to concerts at Massey Hall for like, you know, over 30 years, right? This was the loudest, most enthusiastic audience I have ever seen. They started, and I'm, I can't make this shit up, man. They gave, Philip opened up the show. He got a standing ovation after his first song. Every single song that everybody did all night got a standing ovation. Everybody, it was Damn, insane. I should have played. It was absolutely insane. And then, of course, at the end, right? Because <laughs> you know it's me. I have to throw in my uh, my nineteen seventies uh, uh, variety show moment in there, right? I got everybody on stage to do see the light. So there was eleven guitars on stage, nineteen musicians. Uh, Jerome and Shakura sang lead, and everybody took a solo, and people just it just melted everybody's faces man they were like clapping for 10 minutes after it was done it was insane who are these people and why aren't they just bust <laughs> to every single show I, in I, toronto I, i'm serious man it was they were so <laughs> awesome and and it was funny because i ended up 
originally we've been talking about, you know, we're going to get like some, you know, some radio personality to do the mm-hmm. thing. And then as the date got closer and people that we were thinking about weren't available. And then it was like, you know what? Like, I'm just going to do this. Like, it's just, I'll do it. I've done similar stuff before. And so here I am, you know, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have a rough idea in my head, but you know, being on stage, it's not my thing. Right. So, you know, I just dove into the deep end and I was like, hey, here we are. Right. And people just ate it up there. You know, like people were yelling at me. I was yelling back. We we're doing oh, it. It good. was awesome. Okay. You know, like at one point, you know, of course, uh, that, you know, when am I going to be on Massey Hall stage again? Right. Yeah. So I'm like, OK, I got to take a picture of everybody, you know, and then there's like, you know, people on the you know stage stage right are like going day hey, over here so okay, if i'll take a picture of you guys too and it's like people were just like eating it up and running with it and like so anytime that there was the slightest hitch where i had to fill time it was not an issue because everyone you know became a participatory uh you know program like people it was just oh, it was that's great cool. that's cool. so you know i told some stories that every band that got up told some stories about jeff and um it was it was a great great night and backstage no egos at all. Oh yeah, you can't. And, oh, it was insane. But uh, you can't. But Massey, Massey right now is undergoing all kinds of renovations, right? So the dressing room used to be upstairs. There was no, and now now they're downstairs, okay. cordoned off. So we had nineteen musicians and three dressing rooms, right? So you know, people were setting up in the catering area. <laughs> so yeah. There was this tiny narrow office where someone was in there tuning their guitar. Um, uh, when we were sorting out details for everybody, uh, Randy Backman, you know, uh, he uh, emailed me and he said, yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll just need this. And uh, this is the kind of amp that I'd like to use. And, you know, I need a dressing room. But And so when I called him, I'm like, dude, there's no, you don't have a dressing room. There's three dressing rooms for 19 people. I said, but you'll be in a dressing room with, you know, with uh, Albert Lee, Walter Trout, like all the, the headliners will put you in the one room or whatever. And, and, and I said, I hope that's okay. And he laughed and he said, well, I got to share a, a, a dressing room with, with, with Albert Lee and Sonny Landreth. <laughs> Fuck yeah, <laughs> for sure. So he was, it was great. Everyone was just so cool and laid back. And there was like, you know, I joked about it, but on stage, but there was, it was, it's one of those cliched, stupid things that everybody says, but there was so much love in that room and everybody like it was it was overwhelming for everybody it was really that's really cool. cool that's too bad i wasn't in town to to go to the show i would have loved to have attended well you know we're thinking of maybe doing it again at some point everyone's been bugging us so uh we'll see i mean even the union was awesome right like the the, the it's funny because you know we were uh, running around trying to get stuff done and you know the union at the venue at the venue yeah they they you know they bent a lot of uh, rules for us and stuff and afterwards the guy running massey the operation manager was like dude this has never happened in you know the history of massey hall that they have like typically the stage is supposed to be dark between six and seven it's a hard fast union rule but they went out of their way to make sure that we got all the sound checks and stuff that we needed the the union the whole thing was for charity as well, right? Like we uh, we donated all the money to uh, a World Eye Cancer Fund, um, which um, used to be called Daisy's Eye Cancer Fund, and it was uh, um, it's a charity that uh, deals with uh, pediatric retinoblastoma, which is what Jeff had, which is why he lost his sight. Jeff's son has it, um, but um, through the work that they have done, like when Jeff's son was born, like they were actually able to test him in vitro and so they knew that he had it and he was treated 
at birth. Wow. And so he has better eyesight than I do now. Like he doesn't even wear glasses, right? It's like- so like Lee Majors, six million. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so anyway, so uh, the union they they donated twenty five hundred bucks to to wow. the charity. Wow, it was like it was incredible. So I'm on stage. I'm like, you know what? People say this shit all the time, but like, thank you so much to the union guys, and it was just so great. I mean, that was the kind of night it was. It was it was really special. That's that's good. Um. You, you said you wanted to get back to talking about the record. Yes. Were there some points that we haven't discussed? It's awesome. Did I say that already? No, uh, that wasn't <laughs> mentioned, actually. <laughs> I, I don't think it was uh, understood, so it's good that you mentioned it now. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, the record is just, it's, it's just great. I'm just, we're so proud of, 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 uh, of how everything came together and how it came out and the guys that worked on it. Um, the, uh, my audio guys were amazing. Uh, Neil McDonald and, and Paul Cahayas uh, from Echo Sound Studio Labs. They do a lot of work with banger films. Um, they did all the um, incidental music and uh, mm. restoration for Super Duper Alice Cooper. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie yet. I really want to see it. You should. Yeah. It's really good. I know. Um, and uh, and uh, we had to, because of the nature of the project, there was a lot of... Uh, uh, drums weren't finished on the record like uh, there's a lot of placeholder drums like uh, there was electronic drums on one track but a lot of times it would be whoever was in the studio at the time whether it was the original producer or sometimes Jeff or whoever just laying down a rough very basic drum track so uh, we got a good buddy of ours uh, uh, Dean Glover who's uh, an astounding drummer came in and uh, and he laid his magic all over this thing and it's it's uh, cool. it's really good now, uh, getting back, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up soon, but I can't have you on this podcast about Jeff, and you mentioned it about the Massey Hall show where people were trading stories. Lay down a heavy Jeff Healy story. You gave me one that I've passed along secondhand to a lot of people about when they first played London. Oh, the, uh, right, the, um, yeah. right, okay, so. Yeah. This uh, is heavy. So, uh, I think that since the last time I told you this story, because these things go and go, it's like game of telephone. I've had it clarified now, so I know it's a lot closer to what really happened. So there was less people involved, but it was still cool. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so they're playing London. It's it's uh, one of their first big shows there at the Marquee Club. Um, it's sold out. It, um, I think the album had just come out. He's getting some exposure on BBC. There was people, uh, I've seen f- news footage because, you know, Toronto sent a bunch of cameras down there. Local board does good and all this stuff. So interviewing people that, you know, went all the way from Germany to, to try and see Jeff play and everything. And uh, they do this show. And I think there were some issues with the sound or something. And so, you know, they were already starting on stage to to. To, to bicker as all bands do right I mean it's a it's a it's and a especially at like big shows with a lot of pressure it never goes the way you want for sure and I mean and it's and it's you know it's something that it's I, I can't someone uh, maybe Paul Stanley whatever has talked about it being like a, a being in a band's like a four-way marriage or whatever and yeah. it's it's tight like it's tighter than a friendship because it's work and it's everything thrown in together anyway so so they play nobody else in, uh, in the audience notices anything you know like they the crowd eats it up it's all great they go backstage and um, the band just starts screaming at each other 
<laughs> Jeff and and uh, and the drummer and and Joe Rockman, the bass player, like all just you know at each other's throats, <laughs> just yelling about stuff that went wrong, whatever, back and forth. And um, uh, one of the uh, one of the road crew knocks on the door, and uh, and they open it up, and it's like you know what the fuck do you want? We're busy, right? And he's like, well, there's someone here to see. And it's like ah, fuck off, you know, like whatever, and slam the door and just keep on arguing, right? You know, this little insistent little little knock on the door again, and 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 they're like, what the hell do you want? And this guy's like, um, you know, there's someone here that you really should meet and they're like what the hell like fine okay whatever right and you gotta remember this is like their first big jaunt anywhere right like yeah. outside of North America right, right? so <laughs> so uh, they go fine fine whatever right so anyways the, the guy goes back in and gets the person who wants to, to meet Jeff and it's Jeff Beck right and he just he was like you know that was awesome it was great seeing you play it was really fantastic and you know and they were all just like all of a sudden you know all of the energy got sucked out of the room all of the, all of the argument was just yeah. like you know just them feeling like complete asshats for <laughs> for all this so it was just it was a, a sort of a, it was a great moment but these were Jeff's career his rock career was littered with these things like you know people coming up to him and seeing him play for the first time and um, you know the initially being i guess intrigued by the way jeff played but then hearing what jeff was actually playing like, yeah like bb king bb uh, king and steve ray vaughn were close friends of jeff's um yeah, so many people like and and everyone has you know super nice stories to tell about jeff because you know he he was a, a musician's musician but he also realize that when you're on stage it's a show you got to put on a show people paid money they want to see stuff happen right so which is why you know you see in all the videos whenever he you know he takes his big lead break he'll get up and run around the stage and stuff like that he was like people want to see that shit they don't yeah. want me to they don't want to see some guy sitting in a stool for you know for two and a half hours or whatever right so he just he ran with it yeah know? yeah well, that's cool i know i've heard a few more but i don't want to uh keep you too long but um, you could see it too on the on the walls of Healy's, you know, in his bar. There was like it was littered with with photos of him with you know notable rock and roll types. Oh, crazy! And he would and it, it, he was so low key about it, where you know he would just sort of mention something in passing, and I'd be like, "How the hell do you know Bernie Marsden?" You know, from White Snake. It's like yeah. that's like that seems like someone who would be outside of oh, you know, we just jammed together one time. We were at a festival, whatever. Like it was just it was just very, you know, it was just oh yeah, you know, he was a good guy, you know, the guys in deep purple, you know, like he um he wound up uh, uh Ian Gill and asked him to play on um on his two thousand and six uh, solo album. And it, the the solo that Jeff does on that record is mind blowing. Um you know all kinds of stuff like yeah. that right yeah. like there's so many so many people that he knew that uh you know have have uh fond memories and good thoughts right mm. well thanks man i think we're gonna wrap it up well thank you thanks for coming down and uh let's uh let's end it with a, a track from heal my soul sounds great <laughs> 